folks welcome back to another episode of triple g gingers gridiron and golf podcast i am your host Stephen kerr aka the ginger and we've got another stacked lineup here in our fall episodes we've been going at it pretty strong here for about 10 12 weeks since we returned in late august and we will fire through all the way through until the middle of december and take you right up into nfl playoff football into the new year so Another great fall, uh, guest lineup tonight. We've got Matthew Collar on from Purple Insider Podcast joining us to talk about the Minnesota Vikings. We've got Kevin Turner, aka KT, from About Them po- uh, About Them Cowboys Podcast and Kevin Turner uh, Show Podcast as well, and uh, he's on the TV and radio side as well. So he'll let us know where we can find him. But we're going to be previewing a big Sunday night primetime matchup in Minneapolis, Minnesota at U.S. Bank Stadium between the Dallas Cowboys and the Minnesota Vikings. But before we bring those on, we're changing up our format. We're going to go big game hunting first. When we are After we finish talking with our guests, we're going to get into our game line section, our uh, game line sh- preview, talk about what we learned in Week 7 and into Week 8 of NFL football and give you some of the big matchups that are happening here coming up in Week 8. We'll send you off to break, and when we get back from break, we're going to wrap it up in the world of golf as uh, it starts to wind down a little bit in terms of the uh, the world of golf. Fairly quiet, but we want to give a couple shout-outs to uh, three or four main individuals in the world of golf and some stories that we've seen over this last week. So uh, if you haven't already, make sure you're following us along on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, on all of the social media feeds keep up to date with our pick six segments our our weekly golf picks and more content that will be available and also we are going to have a youtube channel coming up real soon for triple g ginger's gridiron and golf podcast but without further ado let's get right into this big primetime matchup i'm excited for both of these guests let's bring them on and let's welcome them to the show all right triple g listeners let's welcome to the show host of the Ben and Skin Show on 97.1 The Eagle in Dallas, the host and namesake of Kevin Turner Show podcast and About Them po- uh, Cowboys podcast host, Kevin Turner. Kevin, welcome to the show. Welcome back, my friend. Uh, thanks for having me once again. I had a blast last time and uh, happy to be back again. Uh, it's beautiful. I know you're I know you're busy here coming up on a, on a big week eight matchup as we record here on Monday night and the Saints and the Seahawks close out week seven uh, in the next couple hours. But uh, Sunday night football on Halloween. How excited are you to have the Cowboys back um, in the NFL and relevant and right at the top of that NFC East and and the talk of uh, the talk of the NFL, really? Well, I think it's it's good for NFL fans because we know that the Cowboys have a lot of fans, but they also have a lot of people who uh, kind of uh, don't like the Cowboys. So I think anytime the Cowboys are in the news, it's good business for the league and for football fans who can either be cheering for them or going against them. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great one. I think there's no better stadium to play at on Sunday night football than that creepy Vikings uh, 
Stadium. That's kind of a kind of an odd place. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a pretty good matchup too. Minnesota is a a sneaky team at three and three, but they're a team that I think can beat anyone if uh, if the cards fall right for them. Yeah, no doubt they've uh, they've definitely got some off- offensive weapons that uh, that we'll get into later. As we as we kind of round out the first um, you know seven weeks here, Kevin, and we we dive into this big matchup on Sunday night. I want to start on the, the defensive side of the ball uh, before we get into the you know the sexy matchups on on offense. But how has Dan Quinn turned this uh, this defense around to you know historically bad to you know they're not top ten in the league quite yet, but they're opportunistic. They're middle of the pack, and they're they're enough with that offense that the Cowboys can can be dangerous to any team. How has he turned this around? Well, you know, the number one thing that jumps out to me is Dan Quinn is not the Dan Quinn that people might think of. A guy who, you know, okay, he's going to be a 4-3 guy, and he's going to have, you know, big physical corners, and maybe he's going to play a lot of cover three and one safety over the top. And, you know, people might maybe think of the, the days back in Seattle. He's not that. And one thing – the Cowboys have had a very set way of doing things in their time with Monty Kiffin and Rod Marinelli. 4-3, and the left defensive end will be a pass rusher like a Demarcus Lawrence, who's hurt right now. But, you know, what you're seeing now is you're seeing a lot of different looks. Four down linemen, three down linemen. Randy Gregory has played really well. They use Micah Parsons as a blitzer uh, a lot of times. They've played him at defensive end some. So it's a very unconventional defense at times where they're mixing up their looks a lot. And then more than anything, they're taking the ball away. And I don't know that Dan Quinn should get credit for having guys who are, who are really getting a lot of turnovers. I mean, Trevon Diggs, I think his statistics speak for themselves, but you know, as long as they're, they're making plays and getting turnovers, it, it's, it's something that I think Dan Quinn has been more willing to put guys in different places and really give offenses a different look um, than maybe past coordinators were here in Dallas. And you're seeing that pay off. They're, they're a harder team to game plan for when you're putting together your offensive game plan. Yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. The last time we got together, we, uh, we spoke a lot about Micah Parsons and I want to, I want to bring him to your attention again. I know you were, you were high on when we first spoke and, and after seven weeks, I know, you can tell me to pump the brakes a little bit, but he's he's lived up to the bill and some, has he not? No, he absolutely has. But, you know, what they did not know is that when Demarcus Lawrence uh, broke his foot and was going to miss, you know, a couple months, I don't think they knew that Micah Parsons could go play defensive end for them as seamlessly as he has. And they don't do that every week. Um, he's played significantly less defensive end since the first couple weeks that Demarcus Lawrence was out, but he's all over the place. I do, I will say that the last game before the bye week against New England is probably the worst he's looked all year. But you know, it's week six at that point before the first bye week. You know, you're a rookie. You know, you're allowed to have a couple bad games. Um, so you know, a bye week is probably good for him to get recharged because when he's 100 percent and flying to the football, it's very noticeable because he's one of the fastest defenders on the field. Uh, he, he's been well worth, uh, the pick and they ended up picking him, I think 12th overall as they traded down from, from nine. So yeah, he's, he's been very good for them and, and you won't miss him. He is on, he's all over the place. I mean, if you turn on the game and you're just a casual fan of football, you'll see number 11 flying around. 
Yeah, there's, he's quick. You're right. He's quick. He's fast to the ball, and he plays very instinctively, no doubt. Um, flipping over to the offensive side of the ball before we hone in on the on the Vikings in this matchup coming up. Dalton Schultz, um, on a national level, I feel like he's kind of emerged, and we didn't hear a lot about him leading up into camp and as we approach the season. In Dallas, was he somebody that, that you guys felt and knew that this was going to happen? Like 31 catches, 359 yards, and, and three TDs, and then you add on what, what Blake Jarwin's doing. They're getting great production out of that tight end spot um, by both of those guys, and they do line up in a lot of two tight end sets. But to me, Dalton Schultz has really emerged here as uh, you know a top 10, top 15 tight end in the NFL. You know, coming out of college at Stanford, which is obviously a good school for for tight ends given their history and he was a fourth round pick and he was a guy I remember watching his college tape and I'm, I just remember going he's very solid he is a guy who can do everything he can block okay he uh can can run a few routes but there's nothing special about him and I always kind of thought he was a you know fourth or fifth round grade but a guy who you'd keep around as a backup tight end you know last year first game of this, the year Blake Jarwin gets hurt and Blake Jarwin at the time before he got hurt a faster uh, player, more of an up-the-seams type of threat. What yep. you've seen with Dalton Schultz is he's been over-reliable. He's gotten bigger, and he's gotten better at blocking, and he has become a very nice option for your tight end in an offense where defenses are trying to take away Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb and Zeke out of the backfield and Tony Pollard. And you can go on and on and on about how many weapons you got to take away. And just when you think you got to start worrying about Dalton Schultz, they get in the red zone and they'll run a play for Blake Jarwin. I mean, the Cowboys have so many options, but you know, to answer your questions, I did not foresee Dalton Schultz being a guy who would kind of have these numbers that he's been having this year. I, I still kind of thought like he's a great tight end too. And if you've got another guy who's kind of a tight end too, what a good tandem. And that's kind of, to me, what he still is. But sure enough, you look at the box score at the end of some of these games and you go, whoa, again, Dalton Schultz was your leading receiver again. And uh, it's just I think I think part partially it's a testament to him. Um, and B, I think it's a testament to how many weapons this offense has. And I think he's not, he's a weapon that teams kind of, you know what, we're going to pick our poison here. and We're going to maybe have another guy on CD Lamb or have more attention on Amari Cooper and let Dalton Schultz beat us. You think the Cowboys would run, Kev? Uh, I didn't have on on my question list here, but uh, you kind of brought it to my attention. You think when Gallup comes back, we'll see more traditional three wide receiver sets and more of an eleven personnel with Zeke and Pollard in the back, and then all three of those, you know, big tight, uh, big wide receivers with Cooper and and CD Lamb and Gallup back, and that'll kind of ease off on Schultz. Or you still feel that he's a, a target in this offense? I, I just think the natural order of things would tell you they would go back to more three wide receiver sets. But I do know one thing that Kellen Moore wants to do is a keep everyone fresh. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is Cedric Wilson has been a very good third wide receiver in Gallup's absence and can be a wide receiver four. you know. Um, so I think you'll still see opportunities of getting four wide receivers on the field and things like that. Um, I think the personnel group, one thing that Kellen – I think he's building to this. It's kind of saving things for later in the year. And once we get into the playoffs and things like that. So I think you're going to see the two running backs set more often. And I will, I do think you will see fewer two tight end sets as they move forward. 
unless they're unable to, you know, they've, they've had such good success with two tight ends running the football. Yeah. They might continue to do that. And that's something yep. I think they were kind of surprised by how well they've been able to run. I don't think they were counting on that. I, th- I kind of think they thought they would win by Dak throwing it 40 times a game. What they found out is they could go win games with Dak throwing it 25 times a game and running it, uh, you know, 30 times a game, which is kind of how they won in 2014 and 2016. So, but I do think I do think it's hard to pinpoint in on a, a specific formation with Kellen Moore because I do know that he's the type who's going to have stuff, and he's also going to be kind of sitting on stuff and saving it for later in the year. Yeah, that's a great call. Always like to uh, to bring out a few plays that aren't on tape for uh, for late in the year, like you said. Now honing in on these Vikings, and and I look at that that high powered, you know, it, it's two high powered offenses here as we head into Sunday night. Both it, to me inside the top five, if you if you want to argue, definitely the top eight uh, in terms of offenses. And I just can't see this Vikings defense really stopping the the Cowboys offense. To me, their best game plan is to slow them down. Flip it over to the other side of the ball. What's the game plan for Dan Quinn to slow down the Vikings' high-powered offense in terms of Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, Dalvin Cook got 29 carries before the bye week. He seems to be back healthy again. You know, what's the game plan? How are they going to slow down that Vikes offense? Because they can, to me, they can go toe-for-toe when they're on their game with this Cowboys offense. Yeah, you know, it's it's a very interesting thing because the, the Vikings have enough weapons. And I think the clear difference in these offenses – is you would sit there and say, well, the Cowboys have the better quarterback. Uh, and that's not a slide at Kirk Cousins, who, to me, he's he's been pretty good. But I think you start to kind of look at some things when it comes to Kirk Cousins. When he starts to get rattled a little bit and he starts to get on the run, you start to yep. kind of see problems. Yep. And things need to be clean for him. So I, I, I think you're going to see some blitzes. You're going to see – you know, can Randy Gregory go win like he did against New England, where he's pushing the tackle back in the backfield um, and things like that? So, I mean, I think for, for the strategy, I don't know if it's as simple as saying we're going to try to contain Dalvin Cook or, you know, Alexander Madison, or we're going to try to take away Jefferson and Thielen. But I, I do think they, the Cowboys are comfortable putting their guys in situations, one-on-one situations, and bringing pressure. And Trayvon Diggs, and, and he doesn't get talked about a lot, but, you know, Anthony Brown has been a decent, you know, second cornerback and has played pretty well at times ever since week one. Uh, Anthony Brown has ended up holding up to his end of the bargain. And if you're uh, if you're doing that and able to play some man, then you can bring some blitz packages with Micah Parsons, who we talked about earlier, and, and some stunts up front and things like that. So I think – I think the plan is going to be, let's see how much we can get to Kirk Cousins early and often. And, uh, you know, the the big thing that I worry about the Cowboys is their run defense. But we've seen teams kind of feel like they've got to throw it against the Cowboys to keep up with their offense. So if the Cowboys get ahead, they're always in good shape defensively to force other teams to, to throw it. Yeah. Give us an X factor, Kevin. Somebody that, that uh, we might not think about for this Sunday night matchup that could play a big part? Is it, like you said, is it an Anthony Brown? Is it a Blake Jarwin? Somebody that you feel that could kind of pop here on Sunday night on the, on the national, uh, national level? Well, you know, one guy I want to mention because he's, he makes, he's not a, a household name. I mean, there are football fans around the league who know, knows who he is, but J. Ron Curse, who played for the Vikings, 
-hmm. he makes about three or four plays a game that and he, and he doesn't always even start for the Cowboys I mean, they kind of roast 80 minute safety but he makes three or four key plays a game whether it's a tackle on third and three and he comes up and he makes a tackle the you know keep him short of the first time he makes three or four plays a game that make you go man what a good play how did they get him it turns out they got him for the league minimum um Jaron curse is a guy who I think deserves to get a little more attention around the league and and I also think up front, this is a big game for Osa Odigizua, who's played some defensive tackle uh, for the Cowboys. And again, he's a rookie, their third-round pick. Not a household name, but if they're going to stop Dalvin Cook and stop some of what Minnesota's able to do in the running game, they're going to need Osa Odigizua to make a few plays, get a couple tackles for loss and things like that. So those are kind of my big X factors on defense. And and on the offensive side of the ball, you know, you're getting Lyle Collins back from suspension. That's going to be a good matchup. We know that the Vikings have a have an ability to get to the passer, but it's a pretty good defensive line when it comes to rushing the passer. Uh, will Lyle Collins step in and be seamless, or will he look like a guy who's coming off a of five-game suspension? I think that's a huge key matchup to watch on Sunday night. Yeah, and that offensive line this has settled in nicely. You got Zach Martin back now and, and played a few games, and it's starting to settle in, and, and they can really do a good job of protecting D- Dak for sure. Um, looking more long-term at, at the rest of this season to close out with the last few Kevin uh, questions, Kevin, before we let you go. Are they winning games, or do you feel that Mike McCarthy's poor coaching, not poor coaching decisions, but I know there's, there's much malign in terms of his in-game decisions and and use of analytics i saw some stuff on twitter today about comments he made and you know do you think that's going to eventually could rear its ugly head down the road where you know he affects the cowboys in terms of holding them back a little bit in terms of some of his in-game decision making i absolutely think it does i i want to start off by giving him credit when he got the job by saying you know kellen moore is still going to call plays i don't want to call plays now, he might have been told that by the Jones family. Uh, you know, hey, we've got our guy, Kellen, calling plays. That's just part of the job here. But, you know, he's kind of lets Kellen Moore run the offense. Dan Quinn runs the defense. Kind of stays out of it, I think. That's a that's something to kind of actually honestly give him credit for. Um, as someone who's followed his career closely, full disclosure, I'm a Packers fan who covers the Cowboys. You know, the Packers won a Super Bowl, and when Mike McCarthy was hired, one thing that you would hear from the media around here is, well, they've got a coach who who knows – we know he can do it. He's won a Super Bowl. I think it's important to realize when the Packers won that Super Bowl in the 2010 season, they nearly missed the playoffs. And a part of the reason they nearly missed the playoffs is there were some games where some really tight coaching uh, decisions hurt them. And ultimately, it's all on the players. But I, I do think it's a matter of time before some of his poor decision-making does cost them a game. Um, managing a clock is no longer a thing that you can just kind of ignore. To me, you're hiring a head coach, you're paying head coaches lots of money. They need to make a difference in the games, whether that is using timeouts properly. Uh, you know, how are we you know, possessing the football at the end of halves before, you know, a double up situation, perhaps mm-hmm. if you're getting the ball in the second half or at the end of a game, how are you managing the clock and managing the game? I think all of that's important. Um, I don't want to be unfair to Mike McCarthy because your team's good, but I just think that, you know, I've seen him have good teams and thrive. The the term is not in spite of him, but they've thrived 
and made it through despite the fact that he's had some some questionable game management things. And I think that's just something that the Cowboys fans might just need to come to terms with now. Mike McCarthy knows how to run a program. He knows how to win a, uh, to build a, a, a winning uh, team. Not that he's drafting the players, but to put together, you know, a whole, it sounds like program when I, it sounds like I'm talking about college football, but he knows how to build a program bottom up, get a good roster, get play hard and are ready to play each week. Those are things that he should get credit for. The game management stuff, though, is something that I would like for him to take more accountability on, and you just don't really see it enough. And you would like to see him be better in that regard. That being said, I know there's a lot of fans in the sport who get mad at their coaches or whatever for for those types of things, but it is a little egregious with him at times, and it's highly inconsistent. And, you know, if he's going to make a difference in some of these games, it needs to be in the positive way and not because he's making some questionable decisions because there are times he's using analytics and times he's not. And it's just very, it's a, it's a wild roller coaster, right? I guess is what I'm saying. And I feel like some other coaches have that part of the game locked down a little bit better. Um, you, and I've never, I've never thought that Bill Belichick was some game management wizard, to be honest, though. I, I've always thought that's something that he could be a little better at. Um, but you're going to see Bruce Arians, you know, he he, get, he manages games very well. Sean McVay manages games and clock uh, and the clock very well. Sean, uh, Matt LaFleur does Mc, that well in Green Bay. John Harbaugh yep. with the Ravens. So those are guys who you see rarely make a very questionable mistake when it comes to managing a clock and managing timeouts. Yeah, you can throw Sean McDermott into that list from, from Buffalo yes. as well. Um, and I, I agree with you one wholeheartedly. And I think that – on the Viking side, you know, Mike Zimmer's under that same fire. So don't be surprised if you see either from the Viking side or even from McCarthy and Cow- the Cowboys side that, that this gets brought into the light here on, on Sunday night. Last question before we let you go here, Kev, as we approach, uh, you know, one week away from, from the trade deadline, are you hearing anything out of, of Dallas in terms of, you know, not any major trades, you know, they're definitely not in the, the loop on the Deshaun Watson or Watson or anything like that, but any depth pieces in terms of, you know, a depth offensive lineman or, you know, maybe a depth pass rusher and, and, and waiting until Demarcus Lawrence gets back and Neville Gallimore gets back and start to add to that group or a depth corner uh, to help out. You can never have too many corners in the NFL. Um, are you hearing anything or are they pretty comfortable with, with their 53 man roster and what they've built moving forward here? No, I, I feel like they're highly comfortable with everything they have. You know, I, I, and I really haven't heard a lot of buzz rumors, anything like that. As you mentioned, a lot of guys coming back. Um, so, you know, they're going to have some guys who are injured. They had an early bye week A lot of guys who are coming back, that will kind of revamp everything. Um, you know, one thing I will say though, I do think, that to be in a position that they are in and they are kind of dealing with this is Dak Prescott still has a calf sprain uh, or a calf strain, not a sprain, a strain. And is, you know, he's probably going to be questionable for this game. I, I think he will play Sunday night, but he's going to be probably questionable on the injury reports all week. I do think they have kind of failed um, the, I don't know. I don't know if they failed the fans, uh, but the, there should be a, a good backup quarterback on this team. And I know that's a hard thing to ask for, um, but you should have a good feeling and be confident about what would happen to your team if Dak had to miss a game or two 
and, you know, keep your head afloat and keep you, you know, easily walking away with the division. And I don't think Cooper Rush inspires that confidence. So I think that's something I'd like for them to, to take a look at. And I know there's not a backup quarterback growing on trees out there, but it is something that I think is a little concerning when you look like if Dak had to miss a game, Cooper Rush would be your guy. I don't think that makes anyone feel good. So that's something I wish they would kind of spend a little bit of time and just a, a little bit of money on. But I don't think you're going to see that. I think you're going to see them go as is. And as is, let's face it, they are one of the best teams in football. Uh, yes, up no with doubt. the Bills and, and the Rams and the Bucks, And, you know, you want to put them on a board. The Cardinals, we should give them some credit. You know, put them on a board. And, and there they are. Uh, so, I mean, I think this is a team that could go win a Super Bowl right now, and I don't think they really need to make additions. And, you know, there are other teams that I would go, yeah, I don't really – I think they do need to try to add something before you you take them real serious. So, yeah, Cowboys are up there, and I think one of the favorites in the NFC for sure, as is. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Kev, that was an absolute blast. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, before you go, let us let um, our listeners know one more time where we can find you and all the great content uh, that you're putting out there for uh, for the Cowboys. Yes, uh, so I do the About Them Cowboys podcast on The Athletic. Uh, the Kevin Turner Show podcast is on the iHeartRadio app. You just get that and uh, smash the auto-download button. We, I'm on the uh, Ben and Skin shows, my day job that pays my bills. Uh, 97.1 The Eagle in DFW. Also, you can hear that on the iHeartRadio app. And I also have a TV show that airs every Saturday at 2 p.m. called Sports and Such. And you can find all the past episodes of that at sportsandsuch.com and on YouTube if you like uh, jokes about sports. Sports and Such is the TV show for you. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Kevin. Appreciate it. Absolutely happy to do it. Did, uh, uh, hope everyone has a happy Halloween and a good football weekend. Absolutely amazing there from Kevin. Always a fun time talking Dallas Cowboys NFL football with uh, with KT. And uh, that was his second time on the show. So uh, we must be doing something right here because a lot of these guests are coming back. So either they, uh, they're doing us a favor or they're actually enjoying their time here on the podcast. But either way, we're still landing them, folks. So that's all that matters. But um, I'm going to give my thoughts before we get over to Matthew Collar, Purple Insider Podcast, and um, PurpleInsiderSubStack.com writer for the Minnesota Vikings, um, and get his thoughts on how the Vikings are potentially going to win this matchup and how their season's going. Here's my breakdown quickly of, of this big primetime matchup. Listen, we'll start with the Minnesota Vikings. Somehow they've got to, like I said to, to, uh, to KT, they're not going to stop this Dallas Cowboys offense, but they got to slow them down. And, and I know that's the easy thing to say, slow them down, but how are they going to go about doing that? And there's a, there, to me, there's one major fundamental when you look at the Dallas Cowboys and when things get uh, when games get out of hand against Dallas, when opponents go up against Dallas and, and things get out of hand is, is that these pass catchers and these running backs when they get the ball in their hands, they're they're dynamic. C.D. Lamb is dynamic. Tony Pollard is dynamic. Ezekiel Elliott's dynamic. Amari Cooper's dynamic. Like it, there's so much firepower there, but there's so much firepower in terms of of yak yards and and run um, just playmaking ability. Once these guys get the ball in their hands, you know it's not a you know an 18 yard deep deep hook route 
um, or comeback route, and you know they're out of bounds. Similar to what you see a lot with Antonio Brown and Mike Evans. And I'm not saying those guys can't make those big plays, but I'm talking with with the Cowboys is that there's a lot of six to eight to ten yard passes, and these guys are breaking it for 15, 20, 25, 30, 40 yard plays, and that's that's the 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 playmaking ability that the Dallas Cowboys have. And and the way to slow that down is you got to tackle. you got to tackle well, um, whether it be in the run game against Zeke and Pollard or in the pass game against um, some of those big-time pass catchers. The the Minnesota Vikings got to tackle well um, to slow them down. they got to be able to make those four- and five-play drives that are going 75, 80 yards, make them eight- and nine-play drives. You know, let's get this into a five or six possession game. If if they can hold the ball instead of an eight and nine possession game where Dallas can drop a, you know, 35, 40 burger on you. So that's the key for the Vikings. Slow the game down, tackle well, play fundamentally sound on defense, force the Cowboys to go eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 plays and take more clock off, limit their possessions a little bit in terms of a defensive side of the ball. In terms of Dallas, um, I think Minnesota is going to be able to move. I, I made that quite clear. I think both of these offenses are going to be able to move the ball. But um, I think offensively for them, they got to do what they do best, and that's pound the rock, play action off of it, move Dak a little bit, and and, and start to use some of those pass catchers. So that that's not rocket science there. But defensively, I agree wholeheartedly with Kevin Turner. I think you, you, you challenge Kirk Cousins. Don't... If, if Thielen and Jefferson beat you in my mind, no problem. Stack the box, stop Cook, put Cousins in third down, and get after him. I think that's the game plan because if you can get after him, like Kevin said, early and often, things change for Kirk a lot. And I know he's good against the blitz. The numbers are there, and I'm sure Matthew's going to bring it up in our conversation here shortly. But to me, I think if you can get pressure on Cousins, move him off the spot. He's not as accurate. He gets quick feet and things change very fastly for Kirk Cousins, um, especially if those types of situations happen in the first and second quarter. It seems to to continue throughout the course of four quarters when that happens early on in the game. But uh, let's get Matthew Collar's thoughts. Let's bring him on to the show. All right, Triple G listeners, let's give a warm welcome. First time on the show, host of the Purple Insider podcast at Blue Wire Pods and writer for PurpleInsiderSubstack.com and Buffalo's own Matthew Collar. Matthew, uh, you with us on the line here? I am here. Thanks for having me. Well, it was, uh, it's great to have you aboard, and I, I know it's been a while since you've been uh, in uh, on WGR 550. I, th- I believe off-air you said it was 2016, but it's great to hear your voice and, and – uh, it's amazing to have you on the uh, on the show. Yeah, Let's I appreciate get... that. the uh, The bills have gotten much better since I left. That's for sure. That's for sure. And you were there in the the heyday and some some tough times. So I respect that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, I. They were uh, let's see, still hanging on to Rex Ryan at the time when uh, when I when I left. I would have bet you at that time that the Sabers would have made. Um, you know, an Eastern conference final before the Buffalo bills would have made it to the AFC championship. Yeah, that's for sure. And McDermott and, uh, and Bean definitely, uh, definitely saved that for sure. So um, I wanted to get right in. We had Kevin Turner on uh, from the Dallas side of things, Matthew, uh, before you joined us here. And we were talking a lot about Mike McCarthy and some of his in-game decisions. And before we start to hone in, right in on that matchup, uh, the big matchup on Sunday night. I wanted to talk a little bit because I know I listened to your podcast earlier today. 
and uh, you talked a little bit about Coach Zimmer and some of the in-game decisions. Is he holding this team back, or is he possibly one of the reasons why they can't seem to close games out and all these games seem to come down to the end because they just seem to not be able to put the foot on the gas pedal, as you as you put it earlier. I just wanted our listeners to uh, have you talk about it. Yeah, I think the answer is probably yes and no. I mean, Mike Zimmer is a very, very good defensive schematic coach. And if you look at you know, early in the season, they had a game or two that were unimpressive defensively. But for the most part, they have been very strong defensively all season. And I think that's really a testament to Zimmer and how good he is at scheming. I mean, they're one of the best third down teams as usual. I believe they lead the NFL in sacks right now, uh, which is a bounce back from last year. Um, and they sort of taped together their secondary, but they've been pretty solid so far this year. And I think that's all Mike Zimmer's coaching um, and the decisions that they made to bring in the right kinds of players in free agency this offseason. Um, but on the offensive side, I think he's always been really hesitant to lean into Kirk Cousins as uh, letting Kirk Cousins sort of drive the bus, um, in part because his first impression of Cousins was 2018 and Cousins had a high number of strip sacks and pick sixes and things like that. And, and I think he's always wanted to kind of um, keep cousins from giving the game away because uh, when you sort of let him loose, you get the high end and the low end of cousins where he can make some great throws, but he can also make some big mistakes too, taking sacks, turning the ball over. And I, and I think it, it's been Zimmer's plan to sort of mitigate the damage he can do while also trying to, um, you know, get the best out of him in play actions and downfield passes and things like that. And, and I think that the league is just not really rewarding that type of approach a lot these days. I, I think that in years past it did, um, especially if teams had great defenses. Um, but now everybody is looking at the numbers and everybody's thinking maximize offense, maximize points. And so here's Zimmer when it's second and 13, still kind of handing off and, and getting four or five yards and, and playing it safe a little bit at the end of first halves and things like that. And I, I do think that it has been part of the cause of almost every game this year outside of one um, being close and coming down to kicks and fumbles and, and one play here or there uh, because they haven't fully said we're just going to th throw the ball and we're going to push it and we're going to be aggressive. And you look at the uh, average depth of target for Cousins, it's, it's very, very short. I mean, they have not really been pushing the ball down the field. And it sort of reminds you of how several different coaches handled Alex Smith um, you know, I don't know if it was Alex Smith's choice to always throw short and play safe, or if coaches were afraid that if they, if he didn't, that he would turn the ball over or he would struggle or something like that. And I, and I think that in order to get the high end of results, they probably do need to be more aggressive than they've been. So it'll be interesting to see if they went through their self scouting process in the bye week. And if they find like, we've really got to be more aggressive. I mean, they, they lead the NFL in, in three and outs. And that's a lot because of their choices of when to run, how often to run, um, you know, namely, if you're running on first and second down, like it's 1995, then it's going to be pretty hard, you know, in the NFL today to, to with so many great pass rushers and things like that, to just convert on third down over and over and over again. So that um, will be very interesting and in going against some great offenses to see if they try to fight fire with fire. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned the bye week and the self scouting and, and a, a bunch of things there in terms of depth of target. When, when you add it all up, you know, Kirk Cousins sits at, you know, just under 70% completion, almost 300 yards a game. So that the numbers from a, from a high view look pretty solid and look like he's playing at a, at a decent level. I know he's been much maligned over the years in Minnesota. 
what's the temperature there for Kirk Cousins? Are, are is the fan base happy with with how he's performing and and he's done a good job? I know in late game situations, you know things have been uh, been looking pretty nice, and he's been able to lead some of those comebacks and those game winning drives. But do they feel that they still need more productions in terms of downfield target from him, or are they happy? Yeah, I mean, without those game-winning drives, they might be one in five. There also might be some people who follow the team, maybe a large percentage, who wouldn't have minded them being one in five. And they wouldn't have minded saying, okay, this organization needs to change because it ends up stuck in the middle all the time. I mean, there's kind of a point to be made that everything you said is accurate. Kirk Cousins has been fine. He's been good. He's probably been, I don't know, like the 11th best quarterback in the league or something but he's the second most expensive in terms of salary cap hit. And it's really hard to build a Super Bowl roster when you have the second most uh, expensive quarterback who plays even at his best as like a fringe top 10, even when he has a really good stretch, it's somewhere between the eighth and 10th best quarterback in the league. And that's kind of how you end up at three and three. And it's never really been a good combination with cousins and Zimmer. So I think there are some people who you know, feel like the Vikings have put a lot of assets into the defense, not as much into the offensive line outside of some draft picks that haven't all worked out. Um, so maybe part of the short passes is the fact that, you know, they still don't completely trust their offensive line. Maybe that will change with Christian Derrissaw taking over finally, but it's sort of been a big sample size of them not really trusting their highly expensive quarterback And when they have, that hasn't been fully rewarded when they have put the offense on his back and said, go win. I mean, they don't have very many wins against good teams really since Kirk Cousins has been here. And, and I know that people would get upset. It's how, how dare you use win loss record when talking about a quarterback? Well, they paid him to come and win games. Right. And so it's not really so much about Kirk as it is about the entire organization. It has not been a success. And at three and three, that's not a success. That's just where they've been. You're just floating around in NFL purgatory. And I saw whatever ESPN's football power index had them 10th this week. Like, well, that's not bad, but you don't put up banners for being the 10th best team in the NFL, right? So I think that there is, I think a lot of people who look at Kirk and say he's very good and they like him even as their quarterback, but also recognize that how much he costs versus the talent that he has, that is not going to intersect this the same way that it would with like Aaron Rodgers, for example, who you can pay 40 or $50 million. And it doesn't matter because he's so good that he'll just make everybody better. That's not really who Kirk Cousins is. So it's, it's kind of, um, if it were a relationship status, you would say it's complicated for how people feel about <laughs> Kirk Cousins this year. I like it. I like it. And and to your point about the, the mediocrity, it's almost like that... Uh... And and you would get this uh, this quote or this drawback from Doug Whaley, uh, death by mediocrity, or right. So with the Bills and being right in the middle of uh, of the NFL for all those years and not being able to go get that the, the high end draft pick. Yeah, it kind of reminds me really of the Lindy Ruff era in Buffalo after Drury and Briere, where it's like, well, Ryan Miller is good and Thomas Vanek is good, but you know, is it good enough? Right? Can these players carry you? And Vanek, I remember being criticized heavily because of the contract and it's not his fault. He didn't sign himself to that much money, right? Like, like Kirk cousins didn't write out the contract himself. The team had to do it. So they're the ones who deserve to be criticized if it doesn't work out. Um, But at the same time, Thomas Vanek was not enough of an all around player 
to take a team on his back as the most expensive guy and take them anywhere past the first round. And it, it felt very much the same when the Vikings decided to re-sign Cousins after 2019. Um, very much the same as when they signed contracts in Buffalo to you know Ryan Miller, Thomas Vanek, Derek Roy, guys like that, who are good, but not good enough. Not good enough to win championships with. And that's really that's a really hard place to be um, because the owners want to win games. And with Kirk Cousins, you will always win games. Look at every single year. The worst it's ever going to be is seven, but the best it's ever been is 10. And I, I think that there's exhaustion for that. And especially the first half of the season where it's like, well, this game, you got a field goal that went in and you won. This game, you got a field goal that didn't go in, you lost. And it's sort of this bouncing back and forth or roller coaster. It doesn't really feel like that is going to take you anywhere. That feels like, oh, you need to get to the playoffs and get super lucky. Um, and I remember this, you know, this is another Sabres comparison where it's like, yeah, the team you're playing in the playoffs is better, but maybe Ryan Miller will just steal all steal the series it. or something. And it's like, yeah. well, that's not really a model. That's just like hoping that, you know, you kind of get lucky or whatever. And, and that that's how it's felt. And so the Vikings have this crazy schedule coming up where every team they play in the next four weeks right now has more than four wins. And so it's, if you're going to be more than just that team, you've got a chance, really one last chance to prove it because if it doesn't work out, I think they will make a lot of changes. Yeah, you're right. You, you know, you're in the, like, as you put it, you're in the gauntlet of, you know, Cowboys at Ravens at Chargers at home, the Packers, and then you throw the 49ers and the Lions at the end with, with two road games. So it's, it's always tough in the NFL. So you're right about the, the schedule gauntlet for sure. Flipping over to the defensive side of the ball and this matchup specifically, Patrick Peterson's out. How are they going to stop the high, fa- high flying offense of these Dallas Cowboys, you know, with, uh, with Cooper and, and, you know, possibly one of the best wide receivers in the game right now with the ball in his hands and that CD lamp. Yeah. I think that's an incredibly tough task. I, the best way for the Vikings to slow down another team's offense is by having the football in their hands. I think um, because even though they've gotten some really good performances by uh, Everson Griffin, who's bounced back uh, since his return to the Vikings, Daniil Hunter missed all of last year. He's come back and been one of the best pass rushers, in the NFL. So they've had some good individual performances, but Amari Cooper, CD lamb. If Michael Gallup comes back, I mean, you're talking about so much firepower that Dallas has. That's not even to mention that PFF has them as the top run blocking team. The Vikings yep. have really struggled to, uh, to stop the run. And last year, uh, Tony Pollard ran right over them um, and they won with Andy Dalton by running the football successfully. I have a really tough time seeing this team be able to stop the Dallas running game or passing game. And uh, the only advantage that they have is US Bank Stadium is one of the few stadiums where you can actually pinpoint some sort of home field advantage still. Uh, but I, I don't think that it's rattling uh, the Dallas Cowboys. I think the best way is to have a healthy Delvin Cook, which it looks like they're going to have uh, coming out of the bye, and to you know be methodical on offense and then hit on a couple of big plays. I mean, that's really, if you look at their Seattle game, they weren't stopping Russell Wilson or the Seattle running game in the first half. They were just getting completely gashed. But they came out in the second half and controlled the ball and it felt like I never saw Russell Wilson. I think there was something, some stat about like in real time, it was like 40 minutes from the time that uh, Russell Wilson touched the ball in the second quarter to like midway through the third quarter. Yeah, I remember seeing that as well, yeah. Yeah, if they can do something like that, then I think they've got a chance. Otherwise, if 
you're not controlling the ball really. You just have to push it down the field and sort of roll the dice because I think Dallas has some playmakers who have made plays, but on the whole, I don't think they have a great defense. I I don't think there are numbers to suggest that they're really great. I think they've just taken the ball away a lot. And that's something from a week to week basis. You can't really rely upon. So I do think the Vikings have the players um, to, to go back and forth with Dallas's offense. Um, But I don't know if they have the defense to shut them down or hold them to under 20 points or something like that. I think this has shootout written all over it. Yeah. You know, low thirties, high twenties for sure. Um, Give us an X factor, Matthew, on somebody that could, you know, maybe steal the spotlight on Sunday night football. You know, could it be, I know you've been disappointed in, in somebody like Sheldon Richardson. Could it be somebody like him who has a, a big time strip sack late in the game, or um, could it be the continuance of KJ Osborne and, and his emergence as, you know, the wide receiver three in this offense? Yeah, I think KJ Osborne for sure um, has shown an ability to step up in big moments when opponents are putting so much into trying to stop Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen, uh, which they have not since just Justin Jefferson got here, uh, slowed him down at all. I would say, though, the X factor is Cam Dantzler um, because Patrick Peterson is out. Yeah, Cam, Cam Dantzler has a couple of very good games to his name. Uh, he's made great plays at times and has shown a playmaking ability that um, you know goes beyond just your average corner. But at the same time, there have been some serious downs in his game as well. Um, he still probably doesn't weigh enough to be an NFL corner. He gets pushed around at times, sort of loses his technique at times. And that happened against Carolina. He gave up a huge fourth down play to Carolina that almost proved really costly. So uh, he's one of those guys that's kind of boomer bust a little bit. And if you get a great game out of him, I mean, there's a chance you get a takeaway or, you know, you slow down one of those top wide receivers. If you get a poor game out of him, they might attack him all night long. I mean, if you go back and look at a game in 2019, uh, Dak threw against Mike Hughes, I think 21 times in a single game against the same corner. So he will do that all night long. If he senses that somebody's struggling, I think that's kind of the X factor matchup to this game. Yeah, that makes total sense. We're about a week away from the trade deadline. I asked uh, Kevin Turner this in terms of the Cowboys um, as to what they possibly might or may or may not bring in anything that you're hearing out of the Vikings camp about first off, buyers or sellers or are they going to wait to see where they're at after this game and where do you see possibly i know everybody wants the big trade and it never happens in the nfl but is there any depth pieces or or something that they could get at the deadline to to help them through this tough spot in the schedule and into the end of the year yeah i think the corner is really the only position they'd be looking at so if dak prescott throws for 400 yards and dantzler <laughs> gets lit up yeah I, th- I think they'll make phone calls at that point and they could be working on that right now Um, aside from that though, you said it, I mean, it's, it's usually a day where you don't have to set your Adam Schefter alerts. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of action. It's really hard, um, to get value in trades for either side. Um, a lot of times you'd rather just play the string out with a guy than give him up for a conditional seventh or something like that. So, um, it is, and then, you know, the amount that someone can contribute is usually limited just, I mean, based on having to learn a defense or learn an offense that everyone else has been there since OTAs mastering. That's, it's just so challenging to do. I understand it. I I wish there were more entertainment. Uh, I tried on my show to come up with a few ways to make it more entertaining, including shutting the whole NFL down for a week. So the players who got traded could acclimate themselves, but 
Um, you know, none of my guests have liked those ideas. So I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I guess we'll probably have another quiet deadline. Yeah, for sure. Well, let our, our guests know, uh, let us know about your book, uh, making the miracle 2017. I've seen it uh, pinned on the top of your Twitter account and let us know where we can find you, uh, with your podcast and all your work. Yeah. Um, on the Twitter account is a good place to find the book, uh, making of a miracle. It's uh, the background story to the Minneapolis miracle and everything that led to that play, which Stefan Diggs fans might be interested in. Um, so you can find that on Amazon or at my Twitter, just type in making of a miracle. Um, and, uh, yeah, purple insider podcasts is probably the best place. If people are interested in what's going on in Minnesota and, uh, purpleinsider.substack.com. So all over the place. Beautiful. Well, thanks for joining us, Matthew. Enjoy the game on Sunday night, and uh, hopefully we can connect back later in the season when the uh, when the Vikings make the playoffs. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Well, if that's not a complete breakdown of the big-time primetime Sunday night matchup, I don't know what is, folks. But thanks again to both those guests, Matthew Collar and Kevin Turner, for joining us on the podcast this week. What a great breakdown. Let's get into what we learned here in week seven, some big upcoming matchups in week eight, and we'll send you off to break here. So let's start week seven. We brought it up last week. We had one of my listeners reach out to me again. We had another scoregami back-to-back weeks. What are the chances? I misquoted the stat last week. I think I said 1,056. I'd have to go back and listen to the podcast, but we are now up to 1,068 different score combinations, and we had that number happen um, this week, week seven in NFL 2021, and that was 31 to five Arizona and Houston. So uh, pretty interesting. And I had a few, like I said, a few listeners uh, reach out saying they'd never even heard of this before until the podcast last week. And what do you know? It happens again in week seven. So. Uh, It could be one of those years the stars could align. We could have a few more of these uh, new scores, especially goes back to what we talked about on last week's podcast with the different style of play that's happening in the NFL. I think you're going to see some of these new scores and this start to happen a little more often. Teams are going for two more often, more fourth down conversion. So so the the traditional game situations are being changed. In turn, changing the scores of the game. And, you know, the 24-21, 28-20, those traditional touchdown field goal types of situations aren't happening as much anymore because teams are going for two and they get two and then they go for one. And it's there's all these new situations that are being introduced to the game because of the way the, the game has changed being played and the way the coaches are changing the way they view the game and the way they're calling the game in terms of uh, game management and game situations. Number two, um, what a horrendous week. I don't need to go through it. I'm sure you guys have heard it over the last couple days here in in some of the week seven reviews, but uh, average score differential over 20, blowout city across the board. We don't need to get into it. Really only three games that were decided by one score. And two of them were terrible. The first one was the Browns-Broncos, which was an absolute snoozer on Thursday night, 17-14. Uh, Broncos score late to get it to within one score. And then to close out uh, Week 7 was another terrible game. Um, Saints and Seahawks, uh, tough to watch. A lot of open receivers being missed by both those quarterbacks. And, um, you know, Jameis and Geno continue to struggle here in the NFL. Don't know if either will ever figure it out. Um, and a tough spot possibly for both of them in terms of, um, you know, Gino as a backup 
do you, does somebody want to give him a chance? Like this could be one of the last times we see him on the field in his career. And Jameis, what happens here? I, I know the Saints are four and two, but if they things start to slide the other way, uh, he could be losing one of his last opportunities as a starter in the NFL. He could be delegated to a backup as well. So, and then the only real decent game was uh, the Falcons and the Dolphins, sloppy, but what came down to the wire. Um, and decided by a last-second field goal by Young Ho Kyu, um to win it for Atlanta, who gets to three and three. Those sneaky Falcons in the same spot as uh, the Vikings, which we talked about earlier. So, terrible week. But what we learned, and my biggest thing is what I learned, other than a few things which I'll I'll get to next week, and I'll preview next week's episode um, in shortly here. But I learned um, that things are starting to, to we, there's enough of a sample size now. We've started to figure this out and things are starting to settle in now. And we're starting to see the best teams, the cream rise to the top, as I always say, and the rest of the teams are settling in. So, you know, this week, let's look at the AFC. Next week, we'll look at the NFC with the old boy joining us. But we look at the AFC and and to me, things are, are shaping up and, and we're starting to see what's going to happen here. It's it's a tight, tightly contested race up top, and there's still tons of teams playing for that, um, you know, that first seed, that first round bye, which is so important in the NFL as we know. And you got the Ravens five and two, Titans five and two, Bills at four and two with the Chargers and the Bengals and the the Raiders who have declared their name on there um, with two huge wins. Raiders coming off back to back, the Bengals rolling the Ravens both at five and two, and then you got the Browns at four and three. But those to me are the seven, eight teams that are are going to be in this thing till the end. And there's there's a few fringe teams, and but to me the the pretenders are the pretenders, and the contenders are the contenders in the AFC. You know, and you look at those teams and and you say, oh Ginger, what a you know what about the Steelers or what about the the Patriots, or what about the Broncos, or what about the Colts? Well, let's start to go through those teams. You know, Pittsburgh, okay, not scaring anybody offensively. Defensively, they're a juggernaut. We know they have probably one of their best defensive players, or we we probably, it, we, they have one of the best defensive players in the league in TJ Watt. But the Browns twice, the Ravens twice, at the Vikings on Thursday Night Football in December, which Dutch and I have ticket to, tickets to, by the way. Titans, Chiefs, Bengals, Chargers. They're three and three now. Can you see seven more wins there? Because it's gonna take ten in the AFC. It's gonna be ten and seven in the AFC. No, okay. Denver at the Cowboys coming up. Chargers twice. Chiefs twice. Twice. Bengals. Raiders. Can you see seven more wins there? No. Right. Then you go to two teams to me that are playing for, and I I know it's hard to say, and you're gonna say Ginger, come on now. That's a that's a hot take. But they're playing for their season already. And the first one is is the Colts. And they came off of a game on uh, last week on Sunday night in the monsoon in, in San Fran, and they were already playing for their season. They're 3-4 and four now, and they are playing at home to the Tennessee Titans. I think that's a huge game for them. I think they have to win. Because, listen, yeah, okay, you follow it up with the Jets and the Jaguars, okay? You're 3-4. and four, You get somehow get to 4-4. Four and four. You got two... two you know, almost locks there. And then you, you, you follow that up with a tough game um, at Buffalo. Okay. 
and then you, you got the at the Cardinals, and then you got the Raiders on January second to uh, to close this out. So really, it's 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 huge for them because you know they go to three and five, and now all of a sudden you've you've got the buff you've got Buffalo, you've got the at the Cardinals, you've got the Raiders. You can have some more divisional. I know you got Houston in there a couple times, but once again. You get to five already here through eight weeks, and you you're only leaving yourself one or two outs after that, and then it's tough. So you, and you see those games stack up at Arizona at Buffalo. You're gonna lose probably one of those. You lose to the Titans again. Next thing you know, you're already at six or seven. You can't lose another game. So to me, the Colts and this is a tough tough spot for the Colts. If they can win this game, don't be surprised they win the next two, and and we're watching them stroll into Buffalo here in a few weeks at six and four. So huge game here for the Colts. They're going to be playing. They know they know what it's like. They've been playing for their season here for a couple weeks now. And I think New England's in the same boat. I think that's a huge matchup uh, in that 4 o'clock spot at, um, at SoFi Stadium against the Chargers. And um, they're playing for their season. Listen, you're at the Panthers. I know the Panthers are struggling, but it's a road game. They've shown um, that they can, you know, at least be competitive at times. Then you got the Browns. Then you're at the Falcons. Who knows there? Matt Ryan's playing better. Then you got the Titans, Bills at, at sorry at the Bills at the Colts, Bills again, and then you close out with the Jags and the Dolphins. So once again, you get to five. That means after that Charger game, you've got to find seven out of those last eight games, uh, or sorry, nine games to to win. And I just can't see that happening when you've got a gauntlet four in a row of Tennessee, Buffalo twice at the Colts, and then you you sandwich in you you sandwich the Browns and the Falk at the Falcons in there and at the Panthers, and you've got to win seven and nine of those with a rookie quarterback. Good luck. So I think both of those squads are playing for it. I just I think Colts got the best chance in this situation, but I think the I think the 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 contenders like I said the contenders. Are the contenders, and that's what I learned in the AFC this week in Week Seven. Let's move on, and before we move on to our last point here, um, want to get into uh, what, what we're going to be doing next week here with the old boy. But home field looks like it might be swaying back the other way. Nine and four this week out of the thirteen games. The season long um, total sits at fifty three and fifty four, so we're almost back to. To a 500 level here because the road teams were absolutely um, eaten on the road and um, dicing it up against those home teams. So um, home field advantage played a little bit of a role here this week in week seven, and we'll see if that trend continues. Traditionally, it's um, as high as 56 to 60 percent in an NFL season. So um, we were bucking the trend here in 2021. Let's see if we'll get back to kind of standard historical NFL levels in terms of uh, home field advantage. But it could be something that we could see um, or have to follow here in the 2021 and beyond season in terms of uh, home field advantage. Folks, next week we got the old boy joining us. We're going to have a a little segment on Tom Brady. We're going to check in with our NFL officiating after we uh, we looked at it in week one, two, and three. We're going to check back in, see how that's going. Seems like things have leveled out a little bit in terms of just uh, looking from uh, from a blind eye here. But uh, we'll check back in, and we're going to take a look at the NFC and what we've learned halfway through the season. We're going to talk about some of the early runners for MVP, Offensive Defensive Player of the Year, Offensive Rookie, and Defensive Rookies of the Year with the old boy. He's going to be joining us back again next week. 
Let's close out this football section here, folks, with our game lines. And it's a feast or famine week. Um, coming off by Mageddon. I know all those fantasy football uh, owners out there. And we're going to get back into the fantasy football here in a couple weeks. Um, previewing um, upcoming matchups for the for uh, for your playoffs. So we'll get back into that, have a guest on fantasy football here in two or three weeks. Just got to lock that down for in terms of date and timing. But uh, we'll talk fantasy football. So coming off of the Bymageddon, where six teams had a bye this week in week eight, only two, Baltimore and Las Vegas. So it will be uh, interesting to see. But feast or famine, listen, there's some, once again, there's some bad games this week. You know, you look at it, you got the 49ers and the Bears. You got the Rams uh, on the road against Houston, 14.5 point favorites, um, game line 48. Um, the Eagles at the Lions. Can the Lions get their first win? Uh, Eagles are three and a half point favorites. You've got um, the Jags and the Seahawks. The Seahawks somehow are three point favorites. The Bengals on the road against Joe Flacco. Yes, this isn't. This podcast was not recorded in two thousand five. That's Joe Flacco uh, for the New York Jets um, facing the Bengals minus ten, um, forty three on the game line, and the Bills and the Dolphins. Um, once again, Brian Flores, to me, um, coaching for his job here every single week that goes by because if it continues to slide downhill and they don't make a move at the trade deadline here um, for Deshaun Watson, who I just can't see that happening, folks. With You're trading for a guy to come in and, and help you for eight weeks, nine weeks if you don't make the playoffs. He's going to be suspended in 2022 when all this legal stuff gets sorted out for a probably an extended period of time and then what happens you resign him on the new contract who knows so there's a whole lot to sort out i don't think anything's happening i think deshaun watson is a long long way long long way away from stepping on the field uh in the nfl it could be two plus years before we see him back on a football field so um some bad games but there's some real good ones and unfortunate um for probably what was lined up to be the best one of the best, if not the best ever on paper, uh, Thursday night football games. But uh, no Alan Lazar, highly unlikely for Devontae Adams. Who knows about J.J. Watt and DeAndre Hopkins um, when the 6-1 and Green Bay Packers took on the 7-0 and um, Arizona Cardinals here on Thursday night. But that would have been a doozy. Still going to be a great football game. But um, you want your stars out there on these big primetime games. So... The uh, line six and a half. You got to lean towards the Cardinals in that one on the Thursday night home off the short week for Green Bay. Green Bay didn't look that great. You know, I know they won twenty four ten against Washington, but they didn't really they didn't really dominate. Washington actually threw a lot of opportunities away down in the red zone. If you had the opportunity to watch that game, so um, big matchup down in the dirty South, Carolina and Atlanta. Atlanta three point or two and a half point favorites. Uh, three and three versus three and four. Forty-six is the game total. Uh, Sam Darnold maybe playing for his job here. If they fall to three and five, that'd be five straight losses. You'd have to think. We saw P.J. Walker. He got benched last week. You'd have to think P.J. would be given an opportunity after five straight losses to come in there and let uh, Mr. Darnold regroup here. Matt Ryan's playing hot. They've finally unlocked Kyle Pitts. Russell Gage is back. Calvin Ridley. Um, after a mental health break, finally got back. So um, shout out to the Atlanta Falcons, by the way, for handling that situation absolutely perfectly. You didn't hear a boo about Calvin Ridley and the mental health situation until late, late, late last week after being off for a while. 
and all of a sudden they just kind of sprung it on us out of nowhere. Um, so great for him to be back and for the Atlanta Falcons to just let that be and sweep it under the rug, let him be, let him figure it out on his own, in his own privacy, with his family, and come back to the football field uh, when ready. So well done to the Atlanta Falcons and Arthur Smith. And I, I'm going to lean their way. I would love to see them get to 4-3. and three. Titans-Colts, we talked about that matchup for the Colts, how big that is. Titans open up at one point favorites, 51 on the game total. So interesting game there at 1 o'clock. Can the undersized linebackers of the Colts, Bobby Ukariki, um, Okorike, as he likes to be called now, Okariki is way better, by the way. Pat McAfee, if you've ever had the opportunity um, to listen to Pat McAfee announce it, it's absolutely amazing. And... Um, It'll be big on that D-line, DeForest Buckner and uh, Grover Stewart and those big boys up front for the Colts. Gotta stand tall against King Henry because we know what he can do. We've seen it over the last five weeks. Patriots Chargers. Chargers open up at five and a half point favorites at home against the Patriots. Uh, it's time, Mac Jones. It's time to let him loose and see what the kid can do. He's seven weeks in now. Let him be 49 on the game total. Um can the Patriots pull one off here and upset those Chargers? Bucks Saints in the South again, another big matchup. Six and one, four and two. Gotta like the Bucks here to roll. Um, I'm just not sold on the Saints. Sean Payton's been doing a great coaching job. I, you know, you guys know how I feel about Sean Payton, top five coach in the NFL, no doubt. But um, you know, Alvin Kamara is an absolute animal. We saw that uh, on Monday night, but uh, the Bucks are just too good right now. So. Um, shout out, by the way, to San Diego State punter Pat Aridier. I don't talk a lot of college here on the podcast, um, listeners, you know that. But the last two weeks, checked these punts out, 84 and 81-yard punts from this kid. Absolutely phenomenal. Like, like Pat McAfee said, he let off an absolute piss missile um, last Saturday. Uh, 81-yarder, phenomenal. So back-to-back weeks, 80-plus-yard punts, never been done before in history. So cool little stat there. Had to shout that out for the punters and kickers. You know I love my punters and kickers as well. So, folks, what a great preview. Hope you enjoyed the game lines. Another big week set up. Better than last week in terms of some of the matchups. There's about five or six real good matchups out there. We should have some better match uh, games. Should have some better football because last week the football was substandard. So hopefully we get back to par here in week eight. Enjoy it. Make sure you're following us along on our pick sixes. Starting to get better. A little four and two this week. So I'm off the 500 snide. And uh, hopefully we can find you a little five and one, six and oh. Join us after break. We're going to go short and sweet on the world of golf. Enjoy your week eight football, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Here comes the, here comes the, here comes the, y'all don't really want it like yeah. Here comes the, no, here comes the. Real life passion. For real life sports. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed a little segment there from Triple G, Ginger's Gridiron and Golf Podcast. Now let's close this out in the world of golf. This is going to be short and sweet. I know all my golfers out there are wondering why, but not a lot going on. 
And uh, we're going to uh, shout out a few individual people while we work through uh, all of the tours from European to PGA Champions to LPGA to PGA Tour and a few Canadians. And we'll round it out there on our episode here as we approach Halloween. The golf season shuts down in the next few weeks here in southern Ontario and the snowboard snowbirds head south. Our borders are open now. We're able to go. So I know all those golfers out there were real excited about that announcement um, in November. So you'll see a lot of uh, the snowbirds and golfers heading south for their regular routine here in 2021. But uh, the Mallorca Open in the European Tour will start there ended off and now we're at the Portugal Masters. These events are, are pretty quiet even for the European Tour and um, it gives an opportunity for some of the the mid-level to lower level guys to get an opportunity to play, improve their rankings, get some points and and start to get into some of these upper echelon uh, Euro- European Tour events. So a great opportunity um, for a couple of those players out there. But I've got to go over to the PGA Champions Tour now and as we wind down to the Charles Schwab Cup, and it's almost pretty much wrapped up, and we're going to have um, a six-time champion here. But, you know, other than if Jimmy Furyk has something to say over the last couple weeks here as we as we move up, it's a week off. Um, two weeks from now, it's the Tim, uh, Tim Tech uh, Championship at the old course at Broken Sound. But this guy just absolutely amazes me. He should amaze you. And that's Bernard Longer. 64 years old. And when we talked about the Champions Tour, even going back all the way when Dutch joined us in the summertime, what have we, have we talked about? And I'm guilty of it too. Was, you know, all these new faces coming onto the scene and and breaking in the Jimmy Furyk and the the Phil Mickelson and the Mike Weir and the Alex Chaka and all those names that we we talked about last week but the steady Eddie 64 year old Bernie Longer with his 42nd senior tour victory his 118 18th professional victory this guy is absolutely unbelievable three PGA Tour victories two Masters champions 40 42 European Tour victories, like I said, 42 senior Tour victories, six-time Charles Schwab Cup champion. He's ab- he's just absolutely incredible. You know, turned pro in 1976. Like the list just goes on and on, and and he can he can compete, and he can compete on the PGA Tour. You know, let's not go too far back. 2018, at 61 years old, he's T38 and T at the Masters and T24 at the Open Championship. 74 out of 100, 109 cuts made in his professional tour um, majors or professional life in majors. 20 top 10s. So, you know, world number one in 1986. And, you know, he didn't get the credit he deserved. And you're going to say, well, only three PGA Tour victories, right? It's not all about the PGA Tour. 42 European Tour victories. Look when he was playing at, at the time in which he was playing. The European, Olathebel, Sevi, Woosnam, Faldo, Montgomery, right? All those guys were playing over there, and they were playing over full time. It, it wasn't when he was playing there. It wasn't like it was now, where guys are traveling all over the world on their Lear jets and going back and forth. Rory McIlroy, Ian Poulter, Westwood, Fleetwood, Rom, all these guys just bouncing back and forth. You were on the European tour, and you were on the PGA tour. 
And okay, yeah, you would get together for the majors and maybe an odd event here or there, but it was different back then. So that number, that PGA Tour number would have been a whole lot different. And I believe wholeheartedly would have been a whole lot different if Bernard Longer was over there full time. But he decided to play on the European Tour and he played on the European Tour and he dominated on the European Tour. And he got to world number one off of the European Tour. So absolutely amazing. Great to see. 64 years old. Keep it going. To me, he's going to win the Charles Schwab Cup again this year. Close it out. Oh, um, the the incredible stat: twenty top tens, twenty top tens in twenty four events on this on the Champions Tour this year, folks. Amazing. Let's shout out another. Which, dipping down to the LPGA Tour, and it's kind of winding down here with two more events. It's got another off week, so nothing really to preview. They come back November eleventh uh, to the fourteenth in Florida at Pelican Golf Club. Um, for the Pelican Women's Championship, but it's down to a two or three lady race. But Jin Young Ko reclaiming the number one spot in the world, fourth win in seven events, fourth win this year, eleventh win total. I feel like I just talked about her tenth win a couple weeks ago, which was which I did. Um, but it's her and Nelly Korda battling out for the CME Globe Championship. Uh, Patty Tavatanica uh, is going to be the Rookie of the Year, hands down, no doubt. But all of this chatter tells me that we're, as I've always said, and I've been banging the table for it for months now, the women's game is in absolutely phenomenal shape, just as good a shape as the men's game on the PGA Tour. And it's time people start watching the LPGA Tour. These girls are good. Um, the PGA Tour, pretty quiet again. Um, coming off of um, a tough week for us. We just missed out. We didn't have our picks on the podcast last week. We had them up on social. Colin Morikawa, Lanto Griffith, Ryan Palmer were uh, were my picks. Missed out by one shot. Cash in by two of them. Morikawa and Lanto Griffin were T7th. Missed out by one um, in a tough, tough spot there. So um, we're gonna be, we'll have our picks up in a couple weeks. We're taking a little break here on the Bermuda Championship. We'll have our picks back up, uh, Dutch and I, for the Mayacoba Championship at El Camino in Mexico. So look out for those. But this week we're at the Butterf- Butterfield Bermuda Championship in lovely Bermuda. But the key story this week on the PGA Tour is Brian Morris, local Bermuda Club pro. He's had terminal cancer now for uh, for a while, and the PGA Tour has granted him an exemption to play this week in that Bermuda Championship. Class, well done. But for the PGA Tour, I know the guys liked it as well. So look out for Brian Morris. Uh, terminal cancer playing. He's fulfilling a lifelong dream on the PGA Tour this week. Got an exemption to play. Well done, Brian. Best of luck. Fingers crossed for you, my friends. A couple shout-outs here to uh, the Canadian scene to close out this week's episode. Number one, Albin Choi. Um, you may know him as the caddy of Sumjay M., um, especially at the Honda Championship there when Sanjay was in contention. You saw a lot out of Albin, but he is now back swinging those sticks and he is into the final stage of the Corn Ferry Tour qualifying. So well done. Final round 65 or 67, I believe, one of the two to get into that final stage. A couple other Canadians fell just short, but they'll have some conditional status out there, hopefully for the likes of uh, Brad Fritch and others. LPJ side, Jacqueline Lee, Selena uh, Costable, and Maddie Silnick. Asirik all qualify for the top 45 Q series qualifying tournament on the LPGA tour. So hopefully we can get some more red and white out there on the LPGA tour to join those few ladies that are out there already. 
um, and get that scene beefed up similar to the men's side on the PGA Tour, which I believe has nine Canadians now. And last but not least, the PGA of Canada Head Pro Championship this week, um, the next couple days, tomorrow, Wednesday, October 26th, I believe, and um, or sorry, 27th, I believe and 27th and 28th at lookout point golf club so follow along for that as well shout out to all of my fellow or former colleagues who are playing in that get your toque and uh your ring gear ready and uh stay warm out there it'll be chilly but uh what a great golf course you'll enjoy it folks that's gonna do it for this week's episode another stack guest list like i said we've got the old boy joining us next week you know what we're talking about on the nfl side We'll have a little bit of golf coverage in there as well. And other than that, enjoy some NFL football. A couple decent days coming up for all the golfers out there. Get out onto the golf course. Get your last rounds in here before you got to put them away for the winter or head into the simulator. And we'll catch you next week.